May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. You know how you feel when you're right about something. You know you're right. And you're not arrogant about it, but you know when you're right. And when you're right, you're right. And someone says to you, for instance, maybe, how fast does light travel? And you say, well, you know, pretty fast. Somebody pipes in, oh, about 760 miles an hour. And you say, no, no, I think that's the speed of sound. I think light travels at about 186,000 miles per second. No, no, they say that can't possibly be right. 186,000 miles per second? No way. I remember conversations just like this, especially when I was, um, you know, late teens-ish, you know, and and we would be sitting around, friends of mine and I, and and, and we, 186,000 miles per second? Boys, are you a knucklehead? You can't possibly think 186,000 miles per second. I mean... What a strong bully you are. Come on, you can't possibly imagine that. And we would argue back and forth. And did you ever have arguments like this with your friends? You know, for us, we would sit up and play cards all night and, you know, a weekend or something like that. And, and so we're playing spades or, or euchre or whatever we're playing, and the conversation would go off. And then, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, 186,000 miles per second. I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. Can't possibly think that light travels that fast. And then we would go back and forth until somebody would finally say, all right, there's got to be a World Book Encyclopedia around here or something, you know. And it would be the first time in months that we looked anything up, you know, that didn't require copying it for a, a, a term paper or something. And, and they would go hunting for it or, or somebody would call Aunt Mabel if she was still up and ask her. And, you know, whatever it was, we'd have to find the answer to this question. And you've probably, you know, guessed by now. It does. It travels at 186,000 miles per second. That's how fast light travels, very fast. Nowadays, we have Internet on our phones. You know, you can't even have a good argument because somebody's pulled out their phone and they've already had the answer before, you know, it's even kind of gone around the table once or twice. And I get to thinking, I wonder if there are anything, any good arguments left to be had that can't be answered by the Internet. I mean, is there anything out there that's, that's good enough to still argue about, worth debating? Is there anything that you could, you know... Get into a dis- disagreement with your little brother or sister and, you know, kind of rub them on the head and give them a look. No, you know, is there anything like that that can't be looked up? But you know when you're right, don't you? And you know how it feels when you're right. And even if it takes only a nanosecond for somebody to look up on the Internet, if you said, you know, Pete Rose was a 300 hitter. And you're fr- no, no way. 280 maybe. No, it was 300. No, 280. 285. I'll give you that. 285, not 300 career hitter. 303, actually. You know, you, you get back and forth, and, and you know when you're right. And you, when, so, when you're right and somebody tries to talk you out of it, it just, it's so frustrating, isn't it? Wives, tell the truth. You come to a, a, a crossroads, and it's right or left, and you say to your husband, I think we should go left. And he doesn't take your advice, and he goes right, and then finds out that he should have gone left. Oh, how delicious is that, right? I mean, that's a moment, right? I mean, that's, oh, you, you were that for a week. Somehow I have discovered, perhaps, I don't know, maybe it's different, that if somebody asked you, perhaps a spouse, you know, should the rose be cooked at 350 or 400? I can't remember. And, and you say 350. You're always wrong, even if it's 350. But it, it, it does work, you know, that, that you love to be right. We all love to be right. Only sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're not right. We think we're right. We defend ourselves. We, we feel like we're right. I mean, sometimes it's trivial, you know. Calamari. 
Maybe you think it's octopus, when in fact it's squid. You know, I mean, they're both similar sort of animals. Benjamin will probably tell you what kind they are. You know, but you, you think, ah, I'm sure it is. Or, or pasta, you know. I think it grows on trees. Some people think it's made out of flour. <laughs> I, I don't know. But, but you can defend yourself and, and, and think that you're right, feel like you're right. I've yet to see the spaghetti bush. I keep looking for it, but I haven't seen it. Nobody's right all the time. Nobody's constantly right all the time about everything. I know, I know sometimes you've met people who think they're right about everything all the time, but nobody's right. We're always wrong about something sooner or later. You know, you can, you can ask an attorney, you know when you're right? When the facts are on your side, that's when you're right. And when they're not, well, you're wrong. I've always thought that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was preached to the crowds of people who were following him. I mean, that's what all the artwork looks like, right? You see Jesus sitting on the side of a little hill, and there are all these people scattered all about, and he's preaching to them. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He's sitting on the mountain. It's like his little makeshift pulpit. He's up there preaching, and the crowds are gathering around to listen. This is even the scene in Monty Python's The Life of Brian, isn't it? Blessed are the cheesemakers. And, you know, um, they can't understand because they're confused. They're so far back in the crowd. They They can't make out for sure what he's saying. But I'm coming to believe that the, 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 the New Testament scholar R.T. France is right. That this isn't about Jesus going up to the mountain to speak to the crowds, but to escape from the crowds, to get away from them. Let me back up for just a moment and read to you from the end of chapter 4. The end of chapter 4 goes like this. And he, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. So the whole region, the people are, are, are speaking of Jesus. His fame is all over. And they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, And he healed them. Now listen to this. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. There are these great crowds that are following Jesus. And then we go right into chapter 5, the very next line. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up to the mountain. And he sat down and his disciples came to him. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. Not to go and teach the crowds, but to escape from them. That he is fleeing, or at least for the moment, getting away from the oppression of the crowds. He goes and teaches the disciples. Listen, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. See, the gathering is not this multitude, but rather this small group. Now you say, that seems... Interesting, perhaps academic. What's the big deal? Well, context is everything, isn't it? Context is everything. Now, surely he is saying, you know, what's about to come out of my mouth is how to be a faithful Hebrew. But I think even more than that, Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you want to be identified with me, you'll have to do things at a higher level. There is a higher bar to be reached than that which you have previously thought you had to reach. 
He's raising the bar. You have to be, listen to what he says, I tell you, this is our, in our lesson today, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds, goes beyond the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, just as a parenthesis, just a little in between there, when Jesus says kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about the sweet by and by. Now, in, in the other, in the other um, synoptics, Mark and Luke, kingdom of heaven is kingdom of God. But Matthew, with his Jewish sensibilities, removes the word God from the language and uses kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says kingdom of heaven, he's talking about what God is doing here on earth. In the present, God's people gathered together doing God's will and God's work in this world. That's who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. In other words, what the church is doing. What the church is doing in the world. You will not be part of what God is doing in the present unless your moral goodness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not in our lesson, but if you read through chapter 5 and got to about verse 48, Jesus says, therefore... Get ready for this one. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not raising the bar. That's setting it up in an impossible height. I can't be perfect. Heaven knows I have tried to be perfect. And I have failed over and over again. I should say just as a, as a sort of explanation about this second phrase that Jesus is the master of hyperbole. One of the things he does is, is, is use exaggeration as a means of kind of drawing our attention, kind of shaking our, our heads around a little bit and saying, you know, is a really high standard. You know, he says in Mark's gospel, you know, if your hand offends, you cut it off. If your eye offends, you pluck it out. This is a, a very uh, first century Jewish way of teaching. Using exaggeration. But listen, the scribes and the Pharisees know all 613 laws in the Torah. All 613. And they are scrupulous about their keeping of these 613 laws. For instance, the law about how many steps you can take on the Sabbath day outside of the city. Um, There's um, even a contemporary uh, uh, following of this um, same approach. a, a, A Jewish website that says, according to the mitzvah number 321, that's commandment 321, the maximum walking range in one city is 2,000 cubits, 0.596 miles, or 960 meters. You cannot walk in a straight line more than 0.596 miles on the Sabbath day. And if you reach that end, you must sit down and wait until the Sabbath day is over. Be you in the middle of the street or wherever you happen to be. Jesus is saying to his disciples, come here. I want you to be better than that. And you say, my word, I'm trying to count calories. How in the world am I going to count steps? You know, how am I going to do that? And how am I going to do it for 613 commandments? How am I ever going to live up to that ideal? How am I going to be that good? Or is there another Another measurement by which you count goodness. See, that's what the Beatitudes are about. There is. There's a different way. See, when Jesus says, he teaches his disciples, here's what he says to them. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them and say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Let me break those down and say it like this. Here's Jesus' standard, not 613 laws, but rather this. Be humble. Be empathetic. Be gentle. Hunger for goodness. Be merciful. Love purity. Work for peace. Be willing to suffer. And when you suffer, rejoice. If I could quote to you the Bible, chapter and verse... You've heard me mention this. There are, there's a, a Hebrew school right now in Jerusalem for young boys. And there are 12-year-old boys that you could give them three words from the Torah, any three words in, in a sentence from the, from the uh, first five books of the Bible. You give them three words, they'll tell you what verse that is in. They'll finish the verse for you and then from memory recite to you the entire rest of the Torah from that point on. 12-year-old boys who can do this. If I could do that, I mean, I can't, but if I could, you would say, wow, that guy knows his Bible. He must be a pretty holy man. Or, you know, if if I took vows, you know, vows to avoid stuff, you know, wine, women, and song come to mind, you know, you might say, oh, wow, that's a very holy man. Or if I took ascetic disciplines. um, Christians used to do things that were intentionally painful to themselves as a way of drawing their attention to God. They used to wear, for instance, under their clothes, shirts made out of hair, human hair. And they would get infested with lice and bugs and and they would bite and hurt. And they wouldn't scratch themselves so that, so that no one would know. And so they would just live with this pain as a way of saying, look, I, you know, I, I want to I love God with all my being. They would take these ascetic, painful disciplines upon themselves. Sometimes they would hit themselves with whips, self-flagellation. If you knew someone like that, you might say, that person is a very holy person. And Jesus says they might be. But not because of those things. They might be holy, but it's not because of those things. What does it mean to be holy in Jesus' eyes? It means to be humble and empathetic and gentle and decent and merciful and pure and peaceful and loving. That's what it means to be holy in His eyes. Now, all of that is sort of context to get to today's part, in today's lesson. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. How can we be salt and light in the world? By being the way He told us to be. Salt and light are defined by those who are humble and empathetic and gentle and decent and merciful and pure and peaceful and loving. That's what salt and light looks like. And salt creates flavor and light creates, well, light. It dispels darkness. 
imagine you're sitting at home, you're reading a book, it's in the afternoon, the sun is setting, and you're reading your book, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I can hardly see anymore, and somebody walks in the house. Your spouse, a child, a friend, I don't know, whoever walks in your house, and you say to them, hey, will you turn on that lamp? And they say, I'd be glad to. They turn on the lamp, and the light comes on, and then immediately they take their coat, and they put it over top of it. <laughs> you would say, hey, come on, silly, you know what, I can't see, you just, you just kind of covered up the light. You get the point, don't you? You're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. How do we add flavor? How do we add preserving capabilities? How do we add light in this world? By humility and gentleness and mercy and forbearance, empathy and decency and peacefulness. The community that follows Jesus will not be known for its knowledge. It will not be known for its austerity. It will not be known for its politics, its wealth, or its poverty. As impressive as any of those might be by themselves. The the community that follows Jesus will be known by the quality of the content of their character. That bears repeating, doesn't it? The community that follows Jesus will not be known for their knowledge or their austerity or their politics or their wealth or their poverty, but for the quality of the content of their character. That's how we demonstrate to whom we belong. You've heard the story, perhaps, of uh, Roy Riggles, who played uh, football for the University of California in the 1920s. And in the 1929 Rose Bowl, he was playing on defense for the University of California. And they were playing Georgia Tech, and the player, one of the players from Georgia Tech fumbled the ball, and Roy Riggles picked it up. And he got hit by a player, and he got hit by another player, and he was still on his feet, and he got spun around, and he was still on his feet, and he took off running for the end zone. Seventy yards, he ran as fast as he could for the end zone. For the wrong end zone. Completely turned around. He's running the wrong way. One of his own players, one of the fastest guys in the team, ran him down and tackled him on the one-yard line. Halftime, he goes in and he was, he was distraught. He's beside himself. He says, I cannot go back out there. I mean, I'm the laughing stock of the world. I'm an embarrassment to the university. His coach said to him, listen, Roy, the game's only half over. Get back out there. I'm not sure where we are. None of us knows where we are in life, do we? It might be half over. It might be, a, you know... A 90-second over. I don't know. It might be nine-tenths over. We don't know where we are. But this much we know. If we want to go the right way, Jesus has told us how to do it. And I think we ought to. Don't you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.